0: the blood is fake the stress is real
1: there's times that we actually use more blood on stage than what would really happen just for effect
2: Hi, I'm John Yeager with another episode of Bloodworks 101. Did I trick you? It's Halloween and nothing is what it seems. I'm actually John's colleague, Helen Pitlick, and I'm here with a little treat for you today. Now, I think about blood a lot in my role at Bloodworks. I'm on the marketing team, so I don't actually collect blood, but you can't market what you don't understand and once I accidentally dropped my favorite pen into a bucket of tubes and needles on the donor floor, so my job is not without some exposure to it. We talked about why people are afraid of needles in Season 2, Episode 1 of Bloodworks 101. Go listen if you haven't already. The fear of blood is rooted in the same primal reflex. Unless it's a pint voluntarily given by one of our generous donors in a neat little bag, blood is generally supposed to be in your body.
3: You know, it's people don't see blood a lot. It's inside of your body. It's definitely something that when people do see, you immediately think, oh no, something's happened. It could be dangerous, someone could be injured.
2: That's Kara Elise. Kara has provided Seattle with a decade of scares at the Georgetown Morgue, where she does everything from hiring cast members to costuming. I wanted to know how the experts, no, not our phlebotomists or doctors, use fake blood in their work to create a real response. I learned so much more than I expected. Here's Kara again.
3: So we've definitely advanced in our fake blood. We've gone through all sorts of different kinds and brands when it comes to using blood. We've also made our own. We're always trying different things, and now with new companies and new techniques, it's become very interesting to just work with it in general. Right now, our favorite would be Rip City FX. Um, they're a great company. They're actually based in Portland. Portland. Uh, they have all sorts of different blood. So um, they could have anything from different colors to different textures. Like you could get a blood that's coagulated. If you were a vampire, um, you probably wouldn't want coagulated blood on your face because it may look more, I guess, zombie-ish. When I think of a vampire and I think of textures when it comes to blood, maybe they're more proper. They're a little bit more clean. They just have a few drips and a few splatters. But if I were to say, like, say a zombie, maybe you would want really chunky gross because they're digging into things they're getting all over the place they're more of the nasty type of character I would say like definitely everybody likes to have it around their mouth because it plays with people's senses of like were you eating it you know what was going on are you sick is it leaving your body or is it something you know like a deeper darker story definitely being on the face um, near the neck or the hands that really brings it out to people more because it almost already tells a story on its own versus maybe guessing what a wound would be on the body if you just put it on some clothing When it comes to making blood realistic, you really wanna get the color down. And that's something we're really big on when we make our own blood. If you've ever noticed when you watch a movie, the color of the blood may be more pink, it may be more dark. And when it comes to like texture and blood, um, it really just makes the difference, even makes the rating on a movie even more like an R versus a PG-13. So we definitely use a lot of food coloring with our blood. We don't just use red, you know, we use blue, we use purple. We really want to mix that color down so it looks more natural. We don't want it to look pink. So a lot of the time, say if you use blood on clothing or something and then you wash them, you may get pink clothing. When you see something and you see pink, I mean, you're going to think more that's funny versus being something that's going to freak you out. We try a lot of different ways to use blood. We never just put a hand on somebody and kind of smear. If you had a slash, you definitely don't want to pour blood on. You want to put it in a more slashing type of way. So there's different things you could use like popsicle sticks or say if you wanted splatter, then we would mix our blood down and we put it in like a spray bottle. Maybe you could get a chemical spray bottle that hasn't been used from Home Depot and that helps to spray or even just putting your hand directly in it. If it's something that's more thick, kind of gives you that good, flicking factor. So we we're very serious when it comes to our blood art, (laughs) so we want to make sure that we really get it uh, perfect with whatever we're going for. My mother was a nurse, so I feel like I was around hospital settings a lot, and that kind of puts it into perspective where I want a realistic version of it, but then I think of my favorite slasher films, and then I want like a more horror version of it, so I feel like we blend that together. The blood that we make in-house is actually edible, You don't don't want it to necessarily be in your mouth the whole time. It doesn't taste horrible, but you do get stained. A couple of times we've made our own blood and because we use more natural ingredients like food coloring dye, I have stained my whole face. That's why we definitely go towards more professional bloods because they probably have access to things like makeup brands that would make it a lot more pliable where it doesn't stain you. A lot still do. I still love our homemade blood. It's not that I wouldn't use it, but it's not something that you would put directly on the skin. Like you would want to put a makeup barrier first or you could turn into a a pink monster, no matter how much you wash yourself. Getting it off, I definitely suggest, like, if you're using something that's more of, like, a quality makeup, alcohol always helps, um, alcohol-based makeup remover, or just Dawn dish soap. Dawn dish soap is a big thing. It definitely gets a lot of coloring out. With blood, I think more on the realistic factor, not necessarily seeing it, but I get more in my head when it comes to imagery, like, why is the person bleeding? Like, how horrific was it? I think that's what also kind of draws me to horror. I'm very more like interested in why, like the reasoning, why is this happening? So then I can kind of get lost in my own thoughts where that's where it would scare me versus actually just seeing it. People don't see blood a lot. It's inside of your body. It's definitely something that when people do see, you immediately think, oh no, something's happened. It could be dangerous. Someone could be injured. It's not necessarily something you see and you get
2: happy about. It will have blood, they say. Blood will have blood. Does this line sound familiar to you? It's from Shakespeare's Macbeth, that brutal tale of betrayal and murder that you may have read in high school English. Jolene Oberton is the Properties, or props, director at Seattle Repertory Theater. Props are anything on stage or screen that's not an actor, costume, part of the set, or light. Props can help set context, mood, and character in a production, including shock and horror.
1: On Seattle Rep, we use fake blood in any production that needs blood. And we do a wide variety of different things with it. We often buy a specific brand because it comes out of costumes really well. Because anything with like even a red food coloring doesn't want to usually come out. But it's really expensive. Part of it ends up being actually your budget. And therefore, what you're going to make your blood out of. If I would be wanting to do something for a haunted house or something, I would probably mix my own. There's some things that are trickier for stage. It's going to depend on, like, the colors of our light, colors of the actor's skin, and what kind of effects we want it to be. You know, if we want to be at real shocking, you know, somebody falls down and gets hurt, as opposed to somebody gets into a knife fight. Part of the problem... With doing something on stage, in a movie, you can refilm it a whole bunch of different times. On stage, it's all got to be out there, and you're doing it usually eight performances a week. And part of it is like, do we have to have a blood bag on an actor? Do we have to have a blood bag on an actor for an hour and a half before it actually is going to get used? Is it something that happens in a fight, because the fight choreographer gets very involved with how that all movement is. Is it something that the actor can pick up on stage? So all those kind of things are in consideration. There's times that we actually use more blood on stage than what would really happen just for effect. Other kind of considerations is like, how is it used? Is it Is it supposed to come out of the actor's mouth? Therefore, it has to be food grade. Is there a way that other actors on stage can, I want to say, get more blood on a person that's being stabbed? We had done a production of Macbeth a few years back where one of the actors was beheaded on stage after she was killed. We wanted... The audience to be shocked, shocked that human beings could do this to each other. Because we wanted it to be gruesome and stuff, there was a lot of blood flying around. I mean, we had different actors that, yes, people had knives that they would also have in their hand because it was it looked like it was outside. So we'd have some of these things hidden in... Um, amongst the rocks so the actors could pick it up very easily and were just like squeezing it when they did a knife slash. The costume shop had built this um, like a sports bra but underneath it was a whole other plastic bag of fake blood too. So the first cut if that's what you want to call it was across the woman's abdomen. What she did is then she immediately, like, folded in half, you know, like she grabbed her gut. And therefore, she was totally in control of making sure all that blood came out on her white shirt. And then there was just more blood with everybody else that was coming in and trying to do slashing on her. And we also, like I said, we deal somewhat with color, and that also depends on what lighting is doing. If somebody goes in to give a pint of blood, it's very, very dark because it's from a vein. But sometimes we want it to be brighter. Play itself takes an enormous amount of people behind the scenes and in rehearsals and stuff leading up to what the audience sees. We'll sometimes try to do some things in the rehearsal hall if we've got if actors have to be involved in a lot of ways with it. And then quite often we'll start with something that's not blood, we'll start with water or something like that. But we do try to get sometimes a little bit of rehearsal in before we do full-on dress rehearsal. Or we might just do a a specific blood rehearsal.
2: However, fake blood isn't just for entertainment. Jolene's sister is a nurse.
1: And she has asked me before about blood when she's having to do some training, because they were wanting to do some first aid training where the stuff looked pretty good.
2: What she's talking about here is called moulage, the art of creating fake injuries for medical training. Yes, it's a real thing. Nathan Page leads climbing and wilderness medicine programs for the University of Washington's U Wild program. He's an EMT certified wilderness medicine instructor and knows that creating a stress reaction through blood can actually be a good thing.
0: Wilderness well, first aid, most broadly speaking, it is our ability to stabilize someone with limited resources in a more remote environment. Hopefully, it's like something like a splinter or like a minor cut, but if not, if it's something more complex, you're thinking of a creative way to get them out of the woods quickly. I think it's really important to have Wilderness first aid training because it's awesome to have your first major medical issue be fake and see how you respond in that type of environment and seeing how your body responds to that level of stress and being able to feel empowered and work through it in a systematic way is really a cool thing to do. Oftentimes when we're in a more wilderness context, we tend to be there with people we really like, friends, family. Typically, you're responding to someone you really care about, and so I think that is a whole another level of stressors that you want to be able to respond as objectively and as systematically as possible, knowing that you're probably going to have a pretty strong emotional response. So this training involves a lot of scenarios and the moulage, which is, you know, all of the, the, the material that goes into making it look real is what creates this real stress response in the bodies of the responder. So even though the, the blood is fake, the stress is real. And being able to respond in that environment is really important because that's, that's what it's going to be like in reality. We use uh, silicon bandages and a lot of kind of industrial grade, more movie theater grade makeup. And the fake blood we use is this kind of sweet, viscous, it looks it looks a lot like fresh blood um, in, a, in a weird way. And it's, it, it tastes very minty. We use that as kind of an initial piece. That literally is kind of the most stressful element of it all. Is once you see blood, that's when folks typically seize up. So when we're preparing a scenario, we brief the patients and brief the responders. Typically, we will take the patients uh, outside of the classroom, bring them outdoors, whatever the weather may be, and then we'll get them all kind of dolled up. If it's an injury on the you know lower right torso, we'll we'll go ahead and expose that area and uh, use some makeup to put maybe minor bruising, perhaps like a small a small cut on the backside or something that, that we want the responders to ultimately find and treat. I knew that I really hit my peak kind of makeup ability and skills when I was working on someone who, who had a complex kind of mid femur break in their leg. And we use these silicon bandages on the on the surface and they have these fake looking kind of bone spurs I spent for like 10 minutes putting this, putting it on this patient who's a volunteer, finally finished up with fake blood. And like, we were talking the whole time because it was kind of a long process and they finally looked down at their leg and got nauseous and had to sit down for a second because they almost passed out just by looking at themselves. And that's also a pretty realistic scenario, right? When you get injured, looking at your own body... Like, you're, you're like okay I'm, I'm okay I'm, I, I, I took a big mountain bike fall like all right all right oh my god and like once you freak yourself out by looking at your at your finger you know that's like dislocated that can be something that's that, that, that's pretty bad and so we'll prep the patients we'll give them kind of a whole suite of symptoms what they're feeling we'll give them like sometimes post-it notes or cards of what their vitals should be that they can actually relay back to the to the responders usually we kind of put them around in the environment. They like sit under trees or are crumpled under rock walls that the responders have to respond to. We'll tell them like, all right, it's day three. Um, you're out in the Boundary Waters National Park, just finished canoeing. There's this one person, Sally, you're not quite sure about. They just flipped their canoe. You were able to get them back to the shore, but they're still not really something like themselves. Go and go ahead and see what, see what Sally needs. And then we'll, and then uh, the responders will go and size up the scene and respond, uh, hopefully following the training that we just discussed or, you know, had been working on throughout the week or throughout the day. We do a lot of the scenarios, you know, around UW's campus and around the UW Arboretum. And we always carry a sign that says, this is fake, this is a scenario. Because if not, we'll have folks just walking their dogs, like literally running into the scenes, uh, wanting to help. And then the scenario will go for a set period of time and then we'll stop it and uh, review what happens. And after the scenario, after like the dust is literally settled, after the, the fake blood has been wiped away, that's where a lot of really good learning happens. The more practice you can have with all of those other outside stressors affecting your, your, uh, your judgment decision-making, actually responding to someone who you perceive as injured, the more likely you're gonna be able to filter them out when that scenario all of a sudden is reality. That being said, like we do a lot of work beforehand to to get the skills dialed in isolation. So we do little skills labs and we we practice pieces, we uh do lectures. In theory, that gets kind of absorbed and, and gets fleshed out. And then we put that theoretical knowledge into practice in the actual experimental environment. It's it's just so vitally important to give folks the ability to see themselves respond in a way that is that is as real as possible. Because you're learning all this information that you never hope to use. And after you work so hard to remember it, to work through these systems, to get it really well dialed, it will likely just sit in your mind for weeks and months and years before it is used. And so if you have a really realistic scenario, realistic environment, you know, obviously that, that's going to be linked to memory much more strongly, and you're going to be able to recall that event quickly. But being able to separate it and have it be a really novel event is important. And and fake blood and the whole moulage and scenarios that make it really interesting, I think really affect that your ability to remember that content.
2: In actual patient treatment, however, there is no substitute for human blood. Bloodworks needs at least 1,000 generous donors each day to roll up their sleeves to help people in need in our communities. And some of our fake blood purveyors have given a few real pints of their own.
3: I've given blood before. Um, I don't think of it as a scary experience being somebody who works in like a haunted house setting. You know, it's different. You're giving blood and it's something that is leaving your body, but you're definitely doing it for somebody else. So it may be something scary when it comes to thinking about needles, but I feel like the benefit outweighs the risk for yourself just to be uncomfortable for a few moments. It's something that you feel good about in the end. And that's why I like to give blood. And I feel like that's why I really love working with Bloodworks and having you guys on site because I know we do a lot for the community.
1: I became a donor because I'm in the arts and I don't have a lot of money to give to medicine or anything like that. Um, And it was something that I realized that I could do and it didn't cost me anything financially. I really hate needles so it's like me working up my courage to go in to do it but there are times I know that I've gone in when friends of mine were like battling cancer or something and I knew that the blood and platelets weren't necessarily going directly to them but that was going to end up happening for somebody along the way and be able to help them out.
2: Monsters are fake, yes, even vampires, but there's nothing scarier than blood that's not on the shelf when it's needed. I want to thank Kara, Jolene, and Nathan for their time and knowledge, and the Georgetown Morgue, Seattle Rep, and University of Washington for everything they do to save lives through blood drives and pop ups.